we're going to hear from uh, our our guests. Thank you again for coming. First is Rena Shihei. Is it Shihei? Got it right, Shihei. <laughs> I was practicing. I'm definitely going to get Abby's name right in a moment. So that's it. I've got all the names. I did it. Uh, I've known Rena for a while. In fact, I met her. The top left photo um, is the day we met. We met, uh, like I said, in a, on a cultural exchange trip. We were in Israel. Uh, although we come from different corners of, of the country, um, uh, we, uh, we are both Jewish. And um, Israel is an important country for Jewish folks, as you may know. Uh, and so we went on a cultural exchange trip there with a bunch of other uh, social entrepreneurs, some of whom were Jewish, some of whom were not. And the first thing they had us do was herd some sheep. You can see this picture of a sheep the bottom right there. And I was doing my best to try to get the sheep up the hill. Um, not that long later, uh, Rena and I, we, you know, we cleaned up pretty well. And we went to a gala in Washington, D.C. there. That's us in the Uber. And we went to the U.N. Civil Society Conference once, spoke on a panel together. I think we both looked pretty good. There I am listening intently to the stuff Rena said. Uh, so, Maria, do you want to talk um, a little bit about some some of your experiences with cross-cultural application? Sure. So, um, good morning, everyone. I am in northern New Mexico. I'm in Albuquerque right now. And um, my family comes from the Pueblo of San Ildefonso. I'm married into the Pueblo of Zia, and I'm Sephardi Jewish. And so, as somebody who is multi-ethnic navigating the world, you learn to code switch pretty early on and, and you know, the cross-cultural aspect of, of this discussion, um, I think is probably inherent in every day of my life. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I also have done a lot of international development work um, starting in 2015 with the United Nations and 2013 with the U.S. Department of State. Um, I have worked in various nonprofit aspects and advising philanthropy, especially around um, Native Americans and philanthropy. I come from the Tewa people, the Northern Rio Grande Pueblos. And um, I am being Sephardi. I also fall into the Latino category quite often. And um, so I, I would say, you know, I think understanding the target audiences, like where they're coming from is, probably the the most important aspect to any type of cross-cultural communication because if somebody doesn't understand your perspective and you're not putting it in simple terms that references you know language that they're looking for and that they're comfortable with um, you really can't get further than <laughs> you know the initial conversation where it's like we don't understand this and you know it's not going to move forward so making sure that things are very clear and universal language. Um, so one one thing that just now I, I explained that I'm I'm a Tewa person, um, but in grant writing, you know, it's it's much easier to just say I'm Native American, and you know, not specify um, altogether where, like in you know, unique language that. I would prefer, right? Like my preferences aren't always um, at the forefront when I'm, I'm in a code switch need. Um, but beyond that, I've done a lot of work um, with both with our tribal communities and in terms of community-based philanthropy um, that is largely intersectional and international. Um, I think 
from an American perspective, one of the things that gets to be a challenge is that when we do go internationally, we're used to the structural hierarchies that we have internally. And, um, you know, that doesn't apply. And so coming from outside of the U.S. into um, any, any type of U.S. professional space, I think it's also very important to learn about how that works and, um, you know, how professionals adapt to those spaces here. Um, Dave, is there anything specific you wanted me to talk about right now? Or did you want me to go into actual applications of um, like philanthropic work and grant writing and things that I've done? Um, I, so that they, <laughs> I, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear it. So you and I, like I mentioned that you and I went on that trip. Yeah. They were the folks that put that trip on. Uh, it was a foundation, which is somewhat relevant. To, we had to apply to that and everything. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, they must've liked you better than like me. I never got invited back. <laughs> they asked you to, to go back, uh, and be like a leader on a yeah. follow-up trip. I thought you yeah. about, like, and that was with so, a group cohort of folks. If you could talk more about that experience. Great. So, so our trip was about international development and philanthropy professionals. Um, the secondary trip I went on was called Reality Adelante with the Schusterman Foundation. And um, I was a trip leader for that. And it was um, Latino, Hispanic folks from all over the world. Um, and it was 50 very, very accomplished leaders from you know, all over Latin America. Um, I think there were a few people from Spain. And, um, you know, we did a leadership development trip across Israel and it was, it was phenomenal. I think, um, the, we, I, I had to advise the foundation quite a bit before we started the program. And, um, the second trip that I went on was dramatically different. I think, um, I think it was honestly one of the best, like, international trips I've been on in a group form. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that, you know, people coming together, there was just this really stronger sense of, of community and um, the way that we explained the complex, like the, the regional geopolitical complexities was just a lot broader and more diverse than we had experienced on our initial trip. And so, you know, we saw we had a lot of different types of people with us and, you know, this um, really like, like beautiful, like melting pot <laughs> of folks on our trip. And, you know, we, we got along well and um, worked through understanding a different region in a, a really complex way that, um, you know, I previously we had not, been exposed to that in any of the other trips. So I think trying to explain the histories of, you know, where, where we come from, like I, being in Northern New Mexico, right? Like our, we have like three levels of colonization <laughs> and our Pueblo people have been here for 25,000 years per archeological record. And it's really like most Americans like don't understand the history here, but understanding that it's layered and then presenting other spaces that are layered, um, I think was really, really useful. And I think people could understand that, you know, like there's not just one perspective, there's not just one um, way to understand the world. And 
also, um, you know, the history is not always uh, positive, right? But but that doesn't mean that we can't have um, positive pluralistic values that, you know, build a, a more equitable space going into the future. And um, I did work with that foundation in community capacities a little bit beyond that. Um, during the pandemic, um, I requested that they bring in some capital for our Pueblo governors to have Zoom accounts. And that was one thing that we were having a lot of trouble with because um, for Native people, like we're very interested in, in continuing our own cultural lifeways. And one of those things is that we meet in community. And when we have important things to discuss, we meet in community. And during the pandemic, um, our Pueblos were hit really, really hard. And so we couldn't do sorry, that. Sorry. Marina, sorry to interrupt. Uh, a very okay. large number of people have joined in like the last minute. Okay. Do you, you reintroduce yourself? And then, and sure. then I do want to hear, I'm, I was really sorry to interrupt because I do want to hear. This yeah, absolutely. Um, Marina Shihei, uh, general partner at Endemic Venture Capital and CEO of Pueblo Development NGO. Um, I am in Northern New Mexico and I am Tiwa, Native American and Sephardi Jewish. Um, and what we're discussing right now is um, having to navigate with a, a Jewish American Family Foundation, um, getting a grant that was a community, um, a community support grant during the pandemic. And what we needed here in our Pueblos was to meet over Zoom to coordinate our responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, it was really difficult because our, our Pueblo governors did not want to meet virtually. And so our biggest need was to basically provide them this service and basically like force them to meet in this virtual capacity. Um, and they really probably, it would have taken a lot longer had we not just provided um, Zoom accounts and trainings to them in advance. Um, and it was actually really, really, it was a small grant. Like we, we only have 20 Pueblos um, and it was maybe $5,000 and the foundation just did not want to provide it. They wanted to buy like meals for people or they wanted to buy, um, I don't know, like, like PPE equipment and that's not what we needed. And so um, it took several rounds of discussions um, with them to get them to understand, like, look, you know, for us, you know, this is the, the cultural aspect is that we prefer to meet in person. We can't do that right now. So we're trying to create behavior change in a way that's positive for communities so that, you know, we're able to like, can not, not be as impacted by this as, as we could have been. And we had the highest rates, um, in the United States of, um, both infection and, and deaths, we lost over 10% of our population in um, my, my husband's Pueblo. And so knowing that, um, ultimately the fact that we were able to coordinate um, virtually was really, really critical to like our cultural survival. And um, the, the foundation very reluctantly gave us this grant um, and then after that, they said that they would never buy software for people again. And it was like, but you impacted the lives of 60,000 people and helped cultures continue that have existed since time immemorial. And so, you know, the, the frustration on their end 
um, and the frustration interacting with this, you know, to me was really unfounded. Like they did an incredible, incredible amount of good with five five thousand dollars. Like I, I can't even imagine how that could have that kind of impact in any other capacity. Um, but it was really in, incredible the outcome from that because they all adopted Zoom. You know, we had our meetings regularly. We were able to coordinate. Um, you know, our response and, and how we wanted our, our data interacting with the US and, and all of these things. So, um, you know, I think getting it to a place of mutual understanding um, is really important. And then also adapting what you're doing so that, you know, the impact is in language that, you know, they understand and are comfortable with. And I'm I'm thinking they still don't necessarily believe that it had the impact that it did, but it was out, it was, it was really outrageous. And like, you know, buying, buying meals for first responders is very thoughtful, but those first responders, you know, at the end of the day, like maybe they're touching like 20 different patients in a day, 30 different patients in a day. And this was, you know, 60,000 people and the ability to continue our cultural life ways. So, um, I, you know, I, I'd say don't compromise anything that you're trying to actually accomplish because um, there are ways to get it done, but it can be a battle sometimes <laughs> to get the, the, the person across the table understanding you. And um, I, I really had to go through a number of folks in that foundation to get that very small <laughs> grant that had yeah, such an outcome. It highlights something that we say often, which is the importance of a, of, I mean, and, and this is in any grant seeking, particularly cross-cultural grant seeking in the value of the relationship that you're able to make it a conversation and have that because so they're, they encounter some resistance with the grant, which they did not expect is like some, often the last thing foundations expect, right? If this is just thank yous and plaques for them, right? Yeah. And so any level of resistance seems like an absolute catastrophe, right? But you, I think you make a really good counterpoint. I think like you did the hard work to have, and you're you're going to have much more lasting impact than whatever the micro grants go go to now. <laughs> uh, more PR friendly activities, which can be to the you know, which can actually have some impact as well and everything. But like, there are funders interested in more of a relationship and more of a going to take and more of an interesting kind of impact, like the ones the stuff you were able to make. We're going to hear more from Marina in a moment. Uh, but uh, next, Abby Robinson. I found, I dug into Facebook. <laughs> found some pictures from when we worked together. When Abby and I worked together, uh, she I would come in each morning and Abby would ask if I had had a haircut. <laughs> good morning, did you get a haircut? And I said, no. <laughs> Sometimes, yes, I would have I've had a haircut, but not, I don't get a haircut every day. And I checked the timestamp on these photos. These are one day apart. The one on the right is the next day. <laughs> so I can understand why I, I think, unlike a lot of guys, unlike Scott, for instance, I would sometimes comb my hair differently. And that was very confusing to you. I, I want to, I <laughs> I understand why you were asking me if my if I'd had a haircut. Uh, but we worked very hard there behind the scenes, Abby raising money, and I was organizing partnerships to place fellows from all over the world. You can see some of those fellows in the pictures here. 
Um, and Abby's chief role there was uh, was fundraising. Um, also, it's one of the jobs that I've had where I didn't have to MC everything. <laughs> we had multiple capable MCs at Atlas Core. Uh, and actually, Abby probably better than I am, to be honest. Uh, and so without any further ado, Abby, we want to talk uh, about your quite a bit of experience, particularly with Atlas Core, but with some other groups as well. Um, applying across cultural borders. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you, Dave, for the invite and these flashback photos. And Marina, thank you for your dynamic story sharing. You do bring such richness, and it's beautiful to hear, albeit uh, many challenges along the way. Just a, a brief insight into myself is, as they mentioned, I um, was with Atlas Corp for numerous years and working in the international context. I also bring some experience with the Inter-American Development Bank. And I did spend some time in Colombia and actually was working for a philanthropic organization. So got to be on the other side. And now I'm currently based out of Montreal, Canada. So um, bringing some unique perspective there. And I think it's interesting when Dave mentioned about the haircut, it very much underlines my approach to fundraising and how human and how personal it is. And people will say, and I, I do believe that people fund people, they don't fund organizations. So that's why relationships are so key. And um, I also take a very direct approach. And this is one that I recommend. I'm, I'm very much going to focus on how do you write and communicate effectively so you can encourage more people to fund you. And I actually have five key points that I want to share and hoping that this can break this down for you. This is based on what I experienced and also what I've seen. I've actually served as an advisor for many organizations throughout the world on giving them feedback and trying to help them synthesize their organization and their messaging to be able to better approach funders. And um, so that's what I want to talk to you today about. And I think one of those key things, as Marina mentioned, is change your perspective, get in someone else's shoes. And you have to think for a second, even though you're asking for money to fund your cause, what you're passionate about, when you're asking for money, it's not about you. It is about that funder and trying to put it into their terms so that they can understand why what you are doing is so amazing because it is. And so here are these five things is one is follow the rules. And what does that mean? So when you see a request for proposals or an opportunity, um, an outline of what a funder is funding, follow those guidelines, especially when submitting a proposal, there are no points for extra creativity. If they say use 12 point Times New Roman font, do it. If they say we want you to answer these three questions, answer those three questions, answer them in that order, do not go above the page limit, do not go num above the numbers. There's no creativity. Follow the rules. Second, use numbers. What I have found is that when I'm advising, especially an organization that may be newer or really delving in to have a solid proposal, they're sometimes hesitant to add numbers. And they may have an amazing intervention. Let's focus on education, like literacy. They may say, you know, we are teaching youth to read. And we're not really sure. We've, we've done it with 50 kids. We're not sure if we're going to do it with 100. Well, make an educated guess. 
because a funder needs to have the context of what they're supporting. And so think about what you think is, is you're capable of doing and add those numbers. And that's going to help define it, it's your narrative, your words are painting a picture, but your numbers are creating the frame. And that will help guide a funder. And I want to underline, it is okay if when you get that grant, you may not hit the numbers you proposed. No one expects you to do that. They just want to know how their investment may be used. And what does that mean in actual writing? So for example, our goal is to reach 500 youth to teach them how to read. And of that group, we anticipate that 80% is going to pass the national reading test. And then what will happen, once you get it, you report back on that. And you may say, well, actually only 300 people enrolled because there were less youth in the area we were working. That's okay. Or only 70% passed, but we're going to improve. So that's where you start that conversation. But the funder knows, okay, this is what you're trying to, trying to do. So define those numbers. And really, what you're answering is three questions. How many overall you're going to impact with your intervention you want to reach? What percent will benefit? No one expects 100%. We don't live in a perfect world. So please do not write 100% of anything because a funder is going to say that's not true and may disregard your proposal. And then what will change? So will they pass an education test? Will they advance to the secondary level? So decide. So how many, what percentage will actually finish or be affected by that? And then what will change? because those individuals were involved. So the third thing is show me the money. Here's another thing is organizations, you need at least two budgets. One, you need an organizational budget, and two, you need a program budget. You do not need fancy software, you do not need QuickBooks, you do not need a fancy accountant. What you need is those numbers to define your organization. Some of you may already have this, which is amazing. Others of you may be emerging. This is a key element where the funder needs to see, okay, what, how big is this organization? And what are they asking for funding for? And you can use a simple spreadsheet to write this out. And your organizational budget may be the same as your program budget. That's okay. Explain that. And also you need to explain the context of that budget. So what is your fiscal calendar? Whether that's the calendar year, January, December, in the United States, I think there's four different budgets. People use the U.S. government, which starts October 1. There's a, like a, a university budget, which I think starts July 1. You need to define that. Usually a 12-month budget is good. And you just need to explain that. You can have a simple budget. And you also need to show what your expenses. How I recommend making a budget, you start with the expenses. The human time, the resources you need. You don't need to detail it down to like every pencil you buy but break that down into those sections and then you need to have your income some of that income you may know others there's this beautiful world called anticipated so this is where you may have applied for five different grants and you can write well this is anticipated or this is applied so then a funder is seeing how you're working or how this all fits into place so that is the money aspect the fourth tip is find friends. Collaboration is key. And just as Marina was showing the community aspect, reach out within your communities, within the broader context, going to events like this, 
such as making connections. And some of those connections may be, maybe you go in on joint proposals, or maybe you become a sub-grantee, especially organizations that may be delving into the international sphere or delving into larger funders. You may not be there yet, because if you're a smaller organization, let's say your budget is less than a million dollars, it is highly unlikely that someone, an organization that's doing a multi-year grant that is upwards of 500 to 5 million is going to fund you because they're like, wow, that is that organization is just not established yet. But if you're partnering with another organization, a sub-grant, can you be part of a bigger project? Then you gain that experience. So think about how you can find these friends. Also, your friends can help you look stronger. Every organization is incorporated differently. In the United States, as well as in Canada, you're required to have a board of directors. These are your fiscal agents. They are fiscally, mean financially responsible for your organization. That is a legal title. What about how many of your organizations have advisory boards? Maybe a volunteer council? These are individuals that are more, they may be active, like they're engaging with your organization on a certain activity in a volunteer capacity, or they may be lending their name because they're passionate about what you do. Now remember, Atlas Core is a great example. I came in on about year two of the organization and there was the board. The board was a very working board. Like they were friends of the, the CEO trying to get things going. And then he was very smart. He created an advisory board of key figures. Like if you know the founder of Ashoka, someone from the World Bank, someone from the US Department of State. So that when we talked to potential funders, they looked and they said, wow, you have someone from the World Bank, the US Department of State, uh, Ashoka, other these these large international NGOs that are engaged with you? And we said, yes. And so it added that credibility. So just think about how you can add that um, to enhance what you're doing. Because that's uh, funders are looking at that because they want stability, they want credibility. And then the last piece is revise and reduce. So when you are writing your proposal, you're writing your pitch. Please revise. I know you put all this energy in and sometimes I write proposals over the course of like months and then I'm like, I do not even want to see it again because I've read it 50 million times. Then have someone else read it because that spelling mistake, I don't care if you're using AI or however you're writing it, the bad grammar, oh, people are going to say, oh, that's exhausting. Like I can't, I'm reading 20 proposals and I do not want to read a proposal that's just written really poorly. And the other one is reduce. Is so when you're looking at, you may have this beautiful paragraph that's like a whole page long. You know what? Can you say it in half that? It's going to be just as powerful because again, they're reading 20 proposals. Let's really condense to the most powerful words. Or I always recommend a one, two, maybe a three pager about your organization. And this is something I've seen a lot, like organizations will present to me and say, okay, here's what we do. And they'll give me like this 20 page pitch deck. And I'll say, wow, that is great. I do, I, I, I'm lost after page two. Can you please break it down into two pages? And then I can see exactly what you do. And I'm invigorated by that instead of, instead of exhausted from turning pages. So those are my five tips. Happy to discuss. Follow the rules. Use numbers. Show me the money. Find friends. Revise and reduce. Back to you, Dave. Excellent. And we will, I'd like to get... If we can get those five tips, I will add them to the the slides and send them out 
afterwards. People can have written version to go along. Uh, I have a question, something that um, I just want to ask you again about something we were talking about in the pre-session. Uh, when we were at Atlas Corps, we got funding from a variety of different sort of the U.S. State Department uh, and uh, also some funders that accepted proposals in Spanish. We had an office in Colombia. I was very interested to hear, and I think the folks will be interested to hear as well. Uh, they're, they're, <laughs> we call Atlas Corps the reverse Peace Corps sometimes, right? So some of the folks on the call, I think, are doing what you were doing in reverse, right? They speak Spanish primarily and will be applying to foundations that accept proposals in English. You wrote mostly most of our proposals in English, but we submitted stuff in Spanish sometimes as well. Can you and we can you talk about how you went about doing that? That is an excellent question. Uh, and first and foremost, professional translation is expensive and can be cost prohibitive. And second, it is, I think, the fact that many proposals, one of the languages will be English. And there may they may accept other languages, but English yeah. is probably consistent. So one tip I recommend is, and this goes back to the fine friends on your advisory board or creating a circle of volunteers that are either native English or high level English proficiency that would help with reading your proposals. So um, to that example that Dave shared is that yes, I speak Spanish. I am not as eloquent of Spanish writer and I don't feel as confident in my Spanish. And what we would do to help supplement that is that I could write it in Spanish and then we had a strong community in Colombia. And so we had a group that they would revise those proposals and then make it that higher level Spanish that we then felt comfortable professionally submitting. And so is there a possibility to do that? Could you recruit volunteers, get them on your advisory board? You might be looking where to start. So depending on where you're located, I mean, is there a um, an expatriate community or is there a Peace Corps community where you are? Um, are there other international NGOs? to start having those conversations connecting um, because there may be individuals that want to volunteer and offer that service while they're in country or even when they return home. And I know return Peace Corps volunteers are extensively active in countries where they serve. And so those just are some um, stepping stones to seeing where you can find these creative resources, um, asking for help instead of having to pay for professional services. AI, yes, someone suggested AI, which I think is also good. I do recommend you can use AI, use AI, and then have someone read it. And I think this is uh, um, someone from Apandamos Centro de Atención en Sargada. That is great. And that is also a time saver because if you say to a volunteer, you're really putting the final touches, and I think it'll make a big difference. Hmm. I, I would also recommend... Um putting grant prompts into whatever AI tool you're using in English and letting it generate in English, and then potentially synthesizing some of that language into anything that's translated. Because a lot of the translations are just really terrible and, you know, don't get your point across. So if you're looking at, you know, something that's been generated in English and see what, what you're trying to convey, I think that's also just a, a way to navigate on your own if you don't have, you know, that big advisory group around you. Um, you know, it's we're we're fortunate to live at a time where, um, you know, our our HR needs are being met by machine learning a a, a small bit. So, um, you know, I, I would look at synthesizing. I think that's really important to generate in English as well. 
Uh, we did, uh, I just shared a link in the chat. We did a whole session on um, uh, GPT and grant writing. And for sure, uh, it can be very beneficial. One of the things to remember with that is that a lot of grant making processes have multiple steps. And something might work very well for getting through the shortlisting phase, right? And then an entirely different group of reviewers might be reading it at the end at the final decision-making phase, and they might want a more human <laughs> and specific proposal. However, it is an incredible, like, you, I would highly recommend this workshop. Kyle, one of our evaluators who ran it, has been using it successfully, particularly for folks who are writing in a second language. I think that's probably where it is most useful, is as a basically as a better translator. Uh, we've reviewed many proposals here that were quite obviously run through Google Translate. And it can, it'll come up in the feedback report. People will <laughs> point out the awkward sentences and stuff. And I think, like Abby pointed out, the program officer who has to read 40 proposals is going to be particularly bothered by it. And they're looking, they need reasons to cut most of those 40. So you don't want to give them, you don't want to give them those reasons. We here at Unfunded List came up with some tips for cross-cultural grant seekers. And also, in case there's any grant makers listening, hello. <laughs> and uh, we've got some tips for you as well. First, for our grant writers, this is, you know, I'm verbose. I actually tried to, I spent quite a bit of time cutting these down last night. <laughs> uh, we will send them out afterwards. Um, in general, I'd love to hear the panelists' thoughts um, uh, on each one. Uh, I think we can go try to go through them, go through quickly. You can, if you feel, if you just want to give me a thumbs up or thumbs down on each one, add some extra, um, some extra thoughts there. Um, and then uh, we'll have some time at the end, uh, questions from the folks in the audience. I think we might have questions in both English and Spanish. Hopefully that'll be fun. Uh, thank you for um, sharing so far. Uh, so, um, and this is something that I think is absolutely true. And I, I'd like to hear Abby's thoughts about the thoughts about this first one, because this is something I have noticed with American grant writers. America is a big country. And I know, Abby, you are from a part of America called the Midwest. <laughs> and I think culturally in the Midwest, bragging is inappropriate. Would you agree with that? So you're... <laughs> yes, wholeheartedly agree. And also, I found that shared across borders, and and that's one tip. I I I wholeheartedly agree with this one. I would say you need to brag more about what you've achieved or who you are. And this is Atlas Core is a great example. As I mentioned, I came on in year two, an international exchange organization, and then there for thirteen years. So. This bragging and our credentials changed significantly in that we had staff who were right out of college and the, the credentials were small, but we were like, okay, what's important? Oh, all, um, you know, 50% of our staff did AmeriCorps, which is a U.S. government-sponsored service, volunteer service opportunity. Okay, let's say we know how that works. Um, let's mention that our founder was with the U.S. Department of State before he started this organization. And so we look at, and then the advisory board, like we could say, okay, well, on a, 
either our board of directors or the advisory so we could pull that together. And then as we grew, it became easier to brag and saying, you know, our chief operating officer has been certified for five years as an international exchange administrator by the U.S. Department of State because that was true. Whereas in our second year, well, our staff had been certified for two weeks, so that wasn't anything to brag about. So, so think about that. And if someone's been an educator, if you're doing back to that literacy example, if someone, um, ah, sí, yo puedo hablar un poquito en español. Si estamos hablando de educación, si hay alguien que tiene como dos, tres, cinco años de ser maestro en la comunidad, ustedes pueden escribir, ah, mira, una persona que lleva como cinco años de ser maestro. This person has five years of being a teacher. So think about those things that can really make you look good. Uh, Marina, you have a lot to, to brag about. Do you have anything to add about bragging? Tips for how to brag? Um, just making sure to quantify, and, and this was mentioned by Abby earlier, um, just making sure to quantify everything in a, a data narrative and an outcomes narrative. Um, you know, saying that, that you attended a program or a part of a fellowship or all of these things are wonderful and great, but explaining to a reviewer that the fellowship had, I don't know, 10,000 applicants and they picked six people, right? Like that's, you know, something that is a really clear narrative of, you know, why what you did was important or, you know, that you've launched a program within your organization and, you know, it had, it created, I don't know, 15 different jobs and those brought in, you know, an additional $30,000 a year per individual, what, whatever, whatever the outcome is, um, figuring out the way to state that, um, that shows that you're connecting, um, your plans to outcomes. I think grant, like any grant reviewer really needs to see that you are constantly thinking of, of all of the ways that whatever capital is allocated can have those community or, or organizational impacts. Um, and then, you know, making sure that your story is told in a way that um, isn't overly humble. I think that can be really difficult, right? Like this is something that's fairly counterintuitive is speaking about ourselves in um, a way that's, you know, in a little, it feels inflated, but it's, it's not, this is, you know, what they need to see and what they expect from you. Um, but trying to figure out, you know, how to share those things to show your unique value proposition to the organization and really what you hope to accomplish. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, one thing that's not, this is, these are tips for grant seekers here. And one thing that grant seekers do ask often, but I'd like to go to both of you before we look at the, um, grant maker tips, uh, is right. How do you find, like, how do you find <laughs> groups to apply to? This is probably one of the more common questions we get here at unfunded list. And if in, for certain folks, it's going to be much easier. It might be very obvious who funds on that topic. And if you're working locally, then it'll be local funders. So you have a smaller range to look for. And also you can physically, it's easier to physically get in front of them if they physically live in your communities, right? Do you have any tips for folks that are looking for funding over, like that's coming from thousands of miles away? You're both um, 
muted. Um, Ab uh, Abby, in particular, I'm interested to know, and we got a decent amount of funding from not just the U.S. State Department, but like embassies and right agencies like that. Uh, how does one tap into those kinds of opportunities? Yeah, I what well, a couple of recommendations, I'm, and you can Google. There's different search engines, but when thinking uh, kind of more the human-based approach is one, look at other organizations that are in your space, whether they are literally in the same community or whether they're peer on that social issue you may be focused on and look at who's funding them. So you can look at their website, look at annual reports and start researching those foundations. Um, because that might be a great place to start. As I mentioned, the find friends, the number four recommendation is talking to those entities. If you know people in those organizations, ask them for advice and say, you know, who do you, we're, we're working on literacy, we're working on this social issue. Who do you recommend that funds this space? And um, also researching who's funding them. And the saying goes, if you want money, ask for advice. And if you want advice, ask for money. And it's so true. Is going to these conversations when you're talking to potential funders, ask them for advice. Like who would fund this intervention? Who do you think we should approach? Um, and also um, looking within even your own community. And a lot of with Atlas Core, a lot of that was as we built up the volunteers, built up our board, built up this advisory board, and seeing where did those individuals have connections and um, the State Department, as Dave mentioned, working with a lot of U.S. embassies abroad. I mean, we were a State Department affiliated program doing international exchange. Our founder had come from the State Department. And so that was a natural to look at, okay, how are they funding? And it took a lot of conversations and it took learning that style. So it wasn't something that happened overnight, but you start building that up. And, and so think about what are those communities, also these events, and that's the beauty of remote now, is that you can attend more of these events without having to travel. So look at these different communities, um, have a presence on LinkedIn, I think is really becoming rich, um, even more so than it ever has in the past. And also, especially in this international space, some of these larger international NGOs, as, as Dave and Marina were mentioning, how the model's been shifted. I think it's continuing to grow how um, the money may go to large international NGOs. Let's say your World Visions, your CARES, your Red Crosses, but then subgrants, they're trying to trickle more down into the community and knowing that these community-based organizations are having stronger interventions. So are there the CARES, the World Visions and such of the world, are they looking to subgrants? That may be a way to look or even to have the conversations with those staff on the ground and say, is there a way we can get into um, these funding streams or can collaborate with you? So start having those conversations and, and it, does, it does take time to build them up, but hopefully the advice you get will lead to some positive funding outcomes. Uh, terrific. Uh, um, here are, moved on to the next one. Uh, um, um, Rena, did you have anything oh, to? Yes, add? I think I'm I'm frozen. There we are. <laughs> um, I would add that 
you know, most organizations are reachable online, whether it's directly reaching out to them, whether it's LinkedIn, um, you know, finding people on who work for an organization on Twitter. Most people are surprisingly open to, you know, just direct contact. And I can say, you know, when I was getting started and when I was younger and was like, okay, I don't have the network that I need to get the outcomes that I want. Um, just having constant, constant meetings across like time zones and things from my home um, was really, really helpful. And, you know, even when I started, I didn't know what questions I should be asking. I didn't know, um, you know, what I, what I needed to know about these organizations and like, People will teach you in meetings um, if you just have, you know, these introductory meetings and just tell them what you do and what you want. And it's really, like, surprising, like, how effective that can be. Um, it leads to other introductions. It leads to them sharing opportunities with you for years. And I would just say even um, before you're ready and, and when you're not comfortable with it, that's the time when you should be reaching out. Um, and reach out and have those meetings with as many funders and foundations and strangers as you possibly can in the industry. I also put um, a link in the chat, which is one of my favorite international sources for opportunities and fellowships. It's called Opportunity Desk. They have grants, fellowships, competitions, and it's it's just an aggregator. Um, it has a lot of the UN and international development spaces. It's not comprehensive by any means, but it, it has a lot of interesting things on it. So if it's not on your radar already, please add it. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Marina is definitely like always on the pulse. She's constantly applying for things and getting grants. So uh, it's a very strong recommendation. I've never personally heard of Opportunity Desk, but that sounds great. Um, I'd like to open up questions from the folks in a moment, but do you, before we do, do you have any um, anything to add to our tips for grant makers here? Or, or just in general, do you have any strong recommendations for folks who are giving grants across cultural lines? So um, one thing is, so I, I did a recent talk with Native Americans in philanthropy, and I love that they exist as a bridge to translate community needs to grant makers. I think, you know, there need to be more organizations like this, but also looking to organizations like this just as a, a, a learning and like personal edification piece is really critical. Um, you know, you don't necessarily know about a community unless you're hearing from them directly or you don't, you can't anticipate needs unless, you know, you're on the ground. And so um, more places you can listen and learn, uh, the better it's, it really makes that capital that's being distributed more impactful um excellent uh clara are you are you there if so would you like to moderate some questions from the for the rest of the time clara maybe not um, oh, I don't, I do. Oh, wait, no, she is there. I don't know. We can handle it for now. We, if we can use the, using the hand raising feature is very handy. Um, first is, and I don't want to, I'm not going to try it. Abby, can you help me? Yes. Relaciones institucionales. Okay. Hi, good morning. 
Can you can you hear me correctly? Okay. First of all, I wanted to thank both of you for your time. I have two questions, if you don't mind. One's more directed towards Abby, and one is for both of you. Um, I wanted to ask uh, ask them if they had any advice when they first mentioned that we should make a comment about numbers in our proposals from past projects. Um, if they had any advice on what to do when maybe those numbers aren't really impressive in volume, because I'm from Cultura Trabajo and we're a small NGO, so maybe they're not as shocking as one would want to write in proposals, no? And then I had another question for both of you. Um, it's more about if you had any advice on how to apply for specifically U.S. funds, like any specifically on, uh, looking into this cultural side, being more immersed in it. If you had any particular particular sorry uh, advice on that, mm. great questions uh, and. The first one, can I ask what, what's your, what, how would you describe your social issue area? Oh, we work for labor inclusion of vulnerable individuals. So they live in homeless shelters or they are directly homeless. Great. And the first is to make your numbers impactful. And it, it, like Dave had, had this one of his bullet points too, is context. So when you define your problem, can you define it in a way that that explains how can show how your intervention is so strong? So I, I'm going to use simple terms. I'm going to use the literary example again. If you're like, for example, the problem is we're in a community with a hundred children, and then your numbers are we want to reach 75. So that context shows like you're reaching 75% of the youth in that community. So is there potential to do that? And then I think also in what examples of impact do you have? And do you have quotes, success stories? And Atlas Core did a lot of this. When I started, we were at maybe 10 fellows a year. That is not impressive. When you think organizations are bringing like thousands of people to the US and, uh, and then we grew to even a hundred is still a small number. And what we would do, depending on that funder, is have maybe the profile and try to show, okay, we had a woman come from Brazil to work on child exploitation. It's an exchange program in the United States. And then she went back to Brazil and she helped open their Brazil office for this organization. Wow, that's only one person. And yet it shows significant impact. So is there someone, so if you're working with homeless or, the pipeline like someone that was homeless and now they're housed and they're providing for their family um that might be an example of show more of your your pipeline so it's not about the quantity but the quality of how you're providing that service and when looking at you know how do you break into that u.s funding is again you know going back to look at what organizations especially you know what international ngos are are in your space or um, in your country or maybe in your community? Are there connections through those? Um, and looking at, um, are there international NGOs like operating 
in Latin America on this issue um, that you may look at who they're funding um, or can you connect? I, I will say the you know, U.S. embassies, I, I'm, I'm not going to hugely promote that. It may be a starting piece because um, but one trend I've seen over my 13 years with Atlas Core is that embassies have, have been more interested in small grant programs to really fund hyper-local organizations. So that might be, um, might be an opportunity, um, though that's just one avenue. Um, so I'll pause there and see if Marina have anything to add. So um, I, I would say it's really, one of the things that's difficult is that, you know, there's no one way to apply for grant funding in the US, right? Like every foundation is different. Every foundation is looking for different things. Their staff, you know, have, have different backgrounds and proclivities. Um, unfortunately, you have to study that. And you have to study people who got funded, look at the projects that are coming out of it. And if there's anything related or similar to what you're doing, look at using some similar language, but also differentiating yourself from that existing project. Because if they think that they've already funded something like this, you know, like, why are they going to fund what you're doing? Um, I, I would say in addition to that, you know, reach out to the organizations you're thinking about applying toward like funding from and have as many conversations with their staff as you're able and and don't feel bad if they don't respond right like you know i get contacts from strangers all day long and some of them i respond to and some of them i don't and it's not necessarily personal it's based on like my capacity so if you're looking through an organization you know just reach out to a lot of people and and talk to them because there's going to be things in every single organization that you're not going to specifically know because those are the conversations they're having with their boards, with, you know, their advisory committees, with, with the funders themselves, and they'll give you that information. They'll tell you specifically what they're looking for, what they need from you, and how to get funding from them. Um, and that's, you know, honestly, the best, the best strategy is to ask them directly. Thank you so much for your advice. Oh, sorry. I'll add in quickly that, that this comes up at unfunded list sometimes. Uh, we'll have folks send us proposals and they'll say exactly like you said earlier, you know, these numbers aren't impressive and we think that's why people aren't funding us. And it may be, like Marina said, there's a lot of different funders. And if you know one foundation, you know one foundation. Like there, it's a, diff a completely different group of people <laughs> at the other foundation who might be. And I've seen the same proposal apply to very similar looking RFPs and get approved by one program and not approved human beings at the end of the process here. Um, even if, even the programs that do use AI, <laughs> they really only use it in the shortlisting part, right? And then like a human person uh, does make decisions at the end. Um, one of the ways that at Unfundless we can be really helpful with, right? I'm gonna take your proposal. I'm gonna show it to as many different kinds of people as possible. Right. I'll show it to folks whose profile is similar to someone who might be reviewing proposals at USAID. I'll also show it to somebody who has a lot of experience with family foundations. I'll show it to somebody who has experience with your issue area, somebody who is from your part of the world, somebody who has who's, who's never been to your part of the world. Right, As many different perspectives as I can get into the report. Uh, and some of those folks are going to be wrong. They're going to through ignorance, they're not going to know what you're talking about. They're going to be confused. One of the things that I've seen happen, though, uh, is that folks who say what you say, that your numbers aren't that impressive, 
that my reviewers tend to be very impressed by the those same numbers. <laughs> any amount of social change is very impressive. Most people don't do anything. <laughs> right? They just go, they're just trying to go about your lives. If you actually like helped on a significant issue, like you helped, you're helping homeless people in um, some sort of uh, organized fashion, that's that's gonna be very impressive. Like you might not necessarily get the funding, but uh, right, I think there's probably a way to to do your storytelling in a way that is impressive. It goes to our point earlier about bragging better. And uh, I hope you'll, right, send us a scroll. I'd love to read the specifics about what you do and have some folks read it. Um, are there any other, um, it, uh, I can't read any of the, there are some Spanish comments, which I cannot read. Uh, are there any questions? We had a hand raised that went down, but um, we are at a full hour. Uh, so we can, um, unless there are more questions. Uh, Marina or Abby, do you have any closing thoughts for folks? They can just be well wishes if you want. Yeah. I just want to say, keep up the great work. Uh, if your responsibility is really advancing your organization through finding funds, resources, building human capacity, because humans are also a resource that can benefit your organization. Just keep your energy high. Keep positive because you need to turn over a lot of stones. You need to submit a lot of proposals before you have those wins and the wins will come because when you have some valid activities, you have that passion. So just stick with it, um, be positive and, um, and just thank you. Thank you for your work, your efforts, your community is appreciated and that success is gonna happen. So just know um, your work is well worth it. So much appreciated your efforts. Thank you very much. Marina, any last words? I, I just say, don't get discouraged. Um, just continue building your personal knowledge base, learning about, you know, these, these foundations that you might want to work with and keep building your network. Your network is really, really important in, in philanthropy and, um, you know, making sure that you continue to have the resources coming in um, that you need. Terrific. Thank you again for joining us. Tomorrow. Thank you all. Thank you, Dave, for the invite. Marina, it's been great. We do have a QA tomorrow that is entirely in Spanish for the speaker who speaks Spanish can answer questions. Uh, and then, and we have one after that uh, that will be in English and French. Uh, so we've got a bunch of languages covered tomorrow. Uh, this was a very great topical session. Uh, okay, I think I can. I think I can get the. Is it consultando soluciones? Yes, I offer. If anyone wanted to ask something in Spanish, <coughs> I could translate. Thank you. Sí, Arnett, dime. Hola. Tenés que tenés, eh, debes estar muteado. Tenés que habilitar tu micrófono. Genesa Hernández de Venezuela. Eh, sí. Director del Centro de Innovación, Creatividad e Emprendimiento. Este, me gustaría este, este, ¿cuál es la facilidad de acceso eh, para la parte de Sudamérica? en cuestiones de procura de fondos para actividades que tengan que ver con el impulso a, a los objetivos de desarrollo sostenible 
y programas que impulsen a el, el ecosistema del emprendimiento. ¿Cuál es la, el, el, el porcentaje que podrían tener las, las eh, instituciones que puedan accesar a la gestión de fondos? Bueno, voy a tratar de hacer la pregunta. Si querés, igual la puedes ir escribiendo en el chat, así la puedo traducir mejor. Y, y estoy pensando. No creo que te puedan dar una respuesta con porcentaje, la verdad. Pero la pregunta entonces sería, ¿cuál es el, como que, si, si hay, si hay, cuáles son las chances para las organizaciones que persiguen los objetivos de desarrollo? Perdón, ¿me la podrías repetir? Ok. ¿Cuál es la posibilidad que tienen las organizaciones de Suramérica, Suramérica, okay. eh, para poder... Continúa. O sea, seguí, seguí contándome la pregunta que yo la voy traduciendo parte por parte. Ok. Entonces, bueno, ¿cuál es la posibilidad de acceso a procura de fondos para los países de Sudamérica, instituciones que están en Sudamérica, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, exactamente, eh, para accesar a fondos, a fondos, exactamente en los tópicos de eh, desarrollo sostenible, este, ecosistema de emprendimiento, innovación tecnológica y impulso a la red de mujeres emprendedoras, exactamente esos tópicos. Sorry, I'm writing, uh, I'm writing everything he's saying, but not writing it properly. So you can see that on the chat. So he wants to see how many chances organizations that are working on these topics have regarding like the total amount of funding that exists. Uh, so so I, already, I already said that, of course, you're not going to be able to give um, percentages, but he wants to know if it's something that it's uh, paid attention to or not. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I'll go first. Uh, I'll try to be quick, uh, just based on some of my own experiences here. Like, yes, absolutely. I think, and I think there's what you have now is a lot of chatter from Western funders or whatever terminology you want to use. Fund people who have a lot of, right? They would like to be, particularly in the international development space, and this has been happening for a long time. They don't want to give to gatekeepers. They would like to give directly to organizations on the ground. Right, that is something that they fundamentally want to do. They will talk, and then if they can do that successfully, that's something that makes them look very good in the space, which is which is um, uh, a motivator, right? What they'll like talk about more privately, right? Is this is very hard to do. The proposal is very hard to understand. It's very hard to figure out which of these organizations is the one is the best one to send the funds to. I'm in the, a similar position to them here at a funded list. I read as many proposals a year as anybody and they come from all over the world and i i usually have the opportunity to follow up and talk to those folks and i give more benefit of the doubt to my program than any funder does uh and when i get to the when i figure out like what's going on in the program i find out that there's that, that it is a very good program no one idly writes writes a proposal um it's all everybody who submits a full proposal somewhere is probably doing something very impressive i say that having read 1051 proposals 
over the last seven years, all of them were written by somebody doing something fundable, right? There might be, they might need a lot of improvement, right? But they are fundamentally tackling a, a, a real challenge. Uh, but like the, the, the fundamental challenge we're trying to tackle here in Unfunded List, and I think there's a lot of opportunity here, is to take your draft, your proposal drafts, right? Get to the, turn the diamond, the, the diamonds, <clears throat> diamonds into polished ones or whatever. Hopefully there's a more flowery Spanish <laughs> translation for that, right? Right. Um, the, I'm sure these proposals can be drafted in a way that makes them fundable for the vast majority of organizations. And and we've I've been able to help some some small number of organizations do that. Hopefully, we'll be able to do more through the Kujlink partnership. Um, I know. I think Marina probably has some thoughts. Perdón, Francisco, eh, ¿vos querés ayudar a contestar la pregunta, o sea, a traducir lo que Dave acá, acaba de decir, o a contestar eh, a contestar eh, la pregunta que hizo Gernet? Tal vez justamente aportar un poquito a la, a la pregunta que tiene el compañero. Eh, sí existen muchas fuentes para Latinoamérica, y ya en todos esos temas, ¿no? De sustentabilidad, de innovación tecnológica, eh, la cuestión de mujeres, en general derechos humanos y demás. Yo, eh, bueno, yo pertenezco a la Red de Cooperación Internacional Mexicana y nosotros, por ejemplo, mapeamos convocatorias para México eh, de cooperación internacional, viniendo de agentes públicos, privados y mixtos. Yo recomiendo al compañero que eh, visite las páginas de Nodoca, de la Red Argentina de Cooperación Internacional, de Impactia y otras, si quieren ahorita las pongo aquí en el chat, para que pueda observar cómo es que sí existen muchas convocatorias para acceso a América Latina, ¿no? Entonces, eh, pues eso es una, una de las preguntas constantes de las organizaciones civiles en Latinoamérica, si existen fondos, y si lo hay, hay muchos, tan solo nosotros mapeamos más de 500 convocatorias internacionales para México. Entonces, seguramente va, va a haber para esos países. Ahorita pongo aquí unas ligas para que puedan este, conocer un poco de esos países. Super. Um, sorry, guys, I know we are way past uh, the hour, but Francisco, si vos podés, estos recursos que vos, que vos estás eh, mencionando, en vez de ponerlos en el chat, que después se pierden, quisieras ponerlos adentro del grupo de discusión de Latinoamérica de cuya link. Yo hoy compartí eh, el acceso a ese link en el último mail que les envía a todos los participantes, y ahí estaría buenísimo porque son recursos que después todo el mundo puede encontrar. Le pones el título como lugares para encontrar fondos, o nada. cada tanto yo publico algunos, y creo que no, todas las personas, y no solo las que, las que asistieron a la reunión, podrían aprovechar. Buenísimo, claro, eh, claro que sí. Gracias. Ok, I don't know if any of the speakers understood what was going on, but what happened was Francisco had some advice, and also some websites where Kermet could um, check out some funding opportunities for specifically Latin America and his, the sectors that he was uh, asking about. So I just, um, I was um, ordering the, uh, putting the information in order. So everyone and not only the attendees could uh, take the opportunity to take that out. And uh, I don't know if any of the other speakers want to respond anything about what, what Garmet uh, had asked. And thank you for staying uh, longer.
Uh, Marina, did you want to? Did you have anything to add to that? Um, I'm not. I'm not super sure the answer to that. So. <laughs> um, yeah, it is, I think it is a big challenge to Abby. Uh, it was actually. It was <clears throat> I remember it was something we were talking about, like when we were on the trip where we met. Uh, also, the, I remember this was. I remember you, me, and Danielle, who was still working at McKinsey at the time, were talking about why, like. American foundations can't really fund in Latin America very well. I think I do. I think it, well, I think language. It's as simple as language is like a primary reason. Um, I'm not really sure about like international tax implications and things like oh, that. Oh yes. So I think you know there's probably quite a bit of that. Yes. But in addition to that, so in in the U.S., Native Americans get 0.4 percent of philanthropy. Latinos year on year get one to three percent. I'm not actually sure. <clears throat> Prior to this conversation, I did look up to see if I could figure out how much of U.S.-based philanthropy goes to Latin America in general. Um, and I don't personally know the statistics. Um, and I wasn't really clear on what that is. I think there's a lot of, um, there's a, a pretty significant lack of transparency when we look at that. And so um, I don't really know the the workaround for that other than knowing that there is significant um application bias and you know knowing that like we have to you know work around that right and trying to figure out like where where those opportunities are and um also understanding like looking at foundations that have never funded in latin america and being like okay the reality is they probably won't find the project and it's probably not worth my time um but you know talking to people who are there is also really important to see if that's changing or if that's possible the, historically, it has been very heavily tied to the church, uh, one one particular church, but all, but in general, religious giving has dominated American-based giving to the region. Uh, the most, including foundations. So, the, the Conrad Hilton Foundation comes to mind. They work with the like Catholic Sisters Network, right? so it's nuns on the ground identifying their grantees, which is one of the better examples of this happening. And in fact, Conrad Hilton Foundation is a partner. With Kujalink, we should mention they're also working with Kujalink to try to right, be able to better fund in the region. There is some very slow movement to try to get better at this. <laughs> is the general takeaway? I think there's a lot of it's a it's a it's a steep climb and probably a deep enough topic that we could do a whole other webinar just on that on that alone. Uh, and we are, as Claire mentioned a couple times, like we're 15 minutes over. We really appreciate the speakers staying long. Obviously, a topic of great interest to a lot of folks. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Clara, for the, the translation uh, and for all the marketing help and everything. Thank you, David, for recording. Uh, and I believe we can call this a wrap on cross-cultural application. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. Clap, clap, clap. Thank you, David. <laughs>